from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Author and professor Michael Long will talk about the life and legacy of Bayard Rustin. After that, 50 years later, where does the Voting Rights Act go from here? Michelle Jawanda of the Center for American Progress will join us to answer that question. That's next on The Public Morality. Bayard Rustin was perhaps the last person one would assume to be the key organizer for the 1963 March on Washington. While he was black, a talented organizer, and a public intellectual, he was also openly gay and a socialist. The latter two considerations forced him to be a man who operated largely behind the scenes. But who was Bayard Rustin, and how should he be remembered today? To discuss Rustin is Michael Long. Long is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Peace and Conflict Studies at Elizabethtown College in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. He has published numerous books on religion and civil rights, including I Must Resist, 150 letters spanning 40 years of Rustin's life, which Long served as editor. Who was Bayard Rustin? And if you would, put his contributions uh, to the American experiment into context, please. Sure. So Vernon Jordan once described Bayard Rustin as the intellectual bank of the civil rights movement. And I really appreciate that characterization because Rustin brought so much intellectual heft to the movement. He's really the one who helped steer the movement toward Gandhian principles early on. So in 55-56, for example, he's commiserating with Martin Luther King Jr., who at the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott is not nonviolent. Uh, he had armed bodyguards. Uh, he had guns in his house. He had applied for a gun permit. And Rustin, at this point, along with some others in New York, are thinking that is thinking that the movement in Montgomery might turn violent. So he goes down and, and talks with King about the importance of nonviolence, and he explains this intellectually. And King is captured in part because he sees in Bayard Rustin an intellectual equal. And that's really who Bayard Rustin was to Dr. King and to the civil rights movement in, at large. Uh, more broadly speaking, Byron, he was really the civil rights tactician uh, above all other tacticians. And so he was the one who uh, planned the strategy for so many of Dr. King's brilliant ideas and his vision as well. Uh, for that vision and those ideas to come to fruition, Dr. King really needed Bayard Rustin's uh, brilliant tactical strategies. How um, did you become aware of uh, Bayard Rustin enough to where you'd want to write a book about him? No, uh, that's a good question. I started studying Dr. King when I was a student at Emory University in Atlanta. And in order to understand King, you really need to delve into Bayard Rustin's life. And so that's how I first became introduced to Rustin, by studying King. But I really became captivated by him because he brought together so many of my interests. For example, I have an interest in civil rights history and in the biography of Dr. King and in uh, gay rights, LGBT rights history as well, and in socialism and in pacifism and in nonviolence. And you see all those topics uh, coming together in one person in Bayard Rustin, and in my estimation, there was really nobody more colorful and colorfully dramatic in many ways than Bayard Rustin in the, civil, in the modern civil rights movement. Say more about that, if you would. Sure. So uh, Bayard Rustin enters the civil rights movement with quite a background by 1956. 
Uh, by this point, Rustin had worked for the Fellowship of Reconciliation in New York, that was headed by A.J. Musty, who was at that time the most famous pacifist in the United States. And he had hired Rustin to become a field organizer. And so Rustin had devoted a lot of his time to trying to uh, create pacifist communities uh, throughout the United States. By this point, by the point he enters the civil rights movement, Rustin had also worked with A. Philip Randolph, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. So in the 1940s, Rustin is part of this really important movement called the March on Washington movement. And in the early 1940s, uh, Randolph is lobbying for defense industries to become integrated so that African Americans can participate fully in the workforce that's supporting the war effort. And he's threatening to march on Washington. And FDR finally gives in. I think he's afraid of a lot of African-American folks uh, marching on the city. So he gives in, and he orders a uh, – he delivers an executive order uh, calling for inclusive treatment of African-Americans in defense industries. And Randolph backs off of that. Uh, Russin's not happy about Randolph doing that, so he continues his work in the March on Washington movement. And for years to come, uh, he participates in efforts to desegregate the military. So he has that as part of his background, which is another beautiful part. Rustin is also a socialist uh, by the time he enters the civil rights movement. So in the late 1930s, Rustin was part of the Young Communist League in New York City, agitated for racial, racial justice. The communists at this point were one of the few groups uh, agitating for racial justice, and so Rustin felt closely aligned with them. He joined the YCL and worked with them until they devoted all their efforts uh, to defeating uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, so he has that part as well. Now, the mm -hmm. gay rights part, Byron, really didn't uh, come to the fore uh, in his political life until the early 1980s. And so maybe we can talk about that later. No, we are going to talk about that, but, but there okay. are some things But there are some things ab about his life as a gay man that, that we're going to touch on in just a moment, sure. be even before the 80s, but we'll, we'll touch on the right. 80s as well. But as you were talking about Byron Rustin's connection with certain people, you mentioned A. Philip Randolph. I'm going to mm -hmm. give you a couple other names and and you and please talk to me how Rustin connects with them as well in addition to King and A Philip Randolph how about Jackie Robinson Ah, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Rustin and Randolph worked together in 1957 and 1958 especially. Rustin, again, he was a great tactical thinker. He was a great strategist, and he knew uh, the drawing power of Jackie Robinson. And we have to remember that at this point, Jackie Robinson is sort of like Oprah is today. He was a huge draw, not only for African, the African-American community, but for the wider uh, communities as well. And so Rustin taps into uh, Robinson's celebrity power, and he invites Jackie Robinson to take part in these youth marches for integrated schools in 1957, 19, I'm sorry, 1958, 1959. And Robinson plays a leading role in these national marches on Washington. And what's really interesting is that we often think of the first major right major uh, march for civil rights as the 1963 march for Washington, march for jobs and freedom but Rustin had organized three other national marches in Washington before that and two of them were these marches for integrated schools so Rustin taps into Robinson's celebrity power and believe me Robinson is primed to do, to do this he is what Rachel has called an informal civil rights leader by this point he's active in the NAACP he's traveling the country speaking on behalf of the NAACP ACP, and he's beginning to take part in the civil rights movement as well. So Robinson wasn't 
couldn't have been any happier to take part in these marches, and especially because he loved working for civil rights with young folks. And so he became eventually active in CORE as well, and with SNCC, too. One other person I'll throw out, uh, Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall. Well, let's go back to 1947. <laughs> see, 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 Michael, this is how this show works. I just lob him up to you, and you just tee him off for me. That's how it works here. I can roll with that. Yeah, okay, good, good. <laughs> so in 1947, uh, Rustin takes part in something called the Journey of Reconciliation. And the Journey of Reconciliation is a predecessor to the Freedom Rides of 1961. So in 47, uh, Rustin and some others organized a bus riding campaign through the Upper South in order to test the Supreme Court decision in the Irene Morgan decision, which criminalized segregated seating on buses in interstate travel. So Rustin and others take a bus tour throughout the South in order to test to see whether the Supreme Court decision is being implemented. Well, they take this plan for the journey of reconciliation to Thurgood Marshall, and Marshall is not a fan of it. Initially, the plan called for the group to go to the uh, lower South as the Freedom Rides did in 1961, and Marshall really threw up a red flag. The year before, he had almost been lynched in the South. And so when he thought of the riders going beyond the upper South, uh, he thought that they would be courting way too much and, danger. And Michael, let me just, just interject just for a moment. The, and the upper South being? North Carolina and up. Okay. Yeah. So Marshall was encouraging them to avoid states like Mississippi, for example. Mm -hmm. And... Um, he did this because he had so uh, he had such violent uh, encounters in the deep south, and he was concerned for their uh, for their safety and welfare. And so, the, eventually, they take Marshall's uh, advice and they restrict their trip to the upper south. Marshall plays another key role in Rustin's life during the Montgomery bus boycott. This is interesting to me as well. So, at the end of the bus boycott, Marshall makes a comment saying something like, "I don't know why all those people marched." All those days, all they had to do was wait for the Supreme Court to rule on the NAACP's case. And this reflects a different approach from the approach that Dr. King and others uh, developed in Montgomery and then continued on in 1957 with um, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And so the NAACP, while it had rallies and marches in its early history, largely focused on education and court cases. And Dr. King, starting in 1955 and then continuing on, focused largely on direct action campaigns, taking it to the streets. And so in 1957... Rustin, sort of reacting to Marshall and the NAACP, uh, encourages King to form the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And this civil rights organization is different from the NAACP in the sense that it focuses heavily on direct action campaigns. Now, Dr. King often said that the SCLC was complementary to the NAACP, but there was a lot of friction between those two groups. And it goes back to that Marshall statement uh, that he made at the end of the Montgomery bus boycott. Hmm. Let, let, let's switch gears for just a moment mm -hmm. and, and talk a little bit about you. Mm -hmm. uh, your bio states that you have a special interest in the genre of letters. Explain that. I do. I, I love reading Letters. I always have. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to love to get letters letters in the mail. Uh, this is when people still sat down with a pen and, and, and wrote real letters I was, was going to say, Michael, you know, clarify what letters means, because some of our listeners may not know what, a, what receiving a letter is. So. Right. 
Well, the ones I'm referring to mostly are those that were typed at old black typewriters. Right. So Marshall, Thurgood Marshall, I, I've done a book on the so early civil rights letters of Thurgood Marshall with Amistad HarperCollins. And almost all of his letters uh, were written on an old black typewriter that he carried around with him. He took it to Korea. He took it to the Deep South. And the letters themselves, when you look at them, they look as if they had just been typed seriously by Marshall, um, sitting down late at night, perhaps with a scotch in hand, as he was wont to do, uh, and type out his thoughts. But I love reading old letters like that, Byron. And I do, I think partly because the force of the personality comes out in the typing. It comes out in the hand. Handwriting. Jackie Robinson, I've done a book on the civil rights letters of Jackie Robinson for Times Books, Henry Holt. And he wrote, he hand wrote a lot of his letters. And I just really appreciate seeing how his personality comes out in the loop of his writing style. And sometimes it becomes really dramatic when he's angry. Uh, then later years, he had other people uh, type his letters as well. But there's something different about letters from emails that, that they lack a sterile quality. I think that emails often have, not always, but often. Uh, and there's something different about sitting down with a pen and writing one's thoughts on paper than there is about thinking linearly, I think, and writing an email. So it, it, they just seem to me qualitatively different. And perhaps I'm being unfair because I haven't read a whole lot of awesome emails, but I'll tell you what, I have read thousands and thousands of wonderful civil rights letters from Jackie Robinson, Thurgood Marshall, uh, gay rights pioneer Frank Kameny, Bayard Rustin, and the list goes on, Dr. King, and the list goes on. And there's nothing better for me to read than that. Well, share with us what Rustin's letters tell us. Wow. Sometimes... You have to read between the lines, and I'll give you a good example. In the 1940s, Rustin went to jail uh, because he refused to serve in World War II, and he didn't want to go to what we call civil, civilian public service work camps. And so he chose jail time instead. And at this point, he had a male lover, a gay lover, back in New York City named Davis Platt. And he and Platt exchanged lots of letters. What's really unique about these letters is that they refer to themselves as women. And so each takes on a different female name. Uh, and they're doing that because they're trying to get past the censors of the jail, uh, of the prison system. And so they want to talk about their feelings, but they can only write about it in code. So that right there tells you something about Rustin's insistence on being himself, but also trying to negotiate the wider world so that he can do that as uh, effectively as possible. His letters are really revealing, and sometimes they talk about his struggles with his sexual identity as a gay man. And later on, most of them are really deeply political as well, and he takes on everything uh, imaginable from Israel to refugees to uh, South Africa and on and on. Uh, but we get a really nice glimpse of Rustin's, the fullness of Rustin's personality from the deeply personal to the uh, openly political throughout all of his letters. Now, early on, starting with Montgomery, it, mm -hmm. I mean, it was known by some at that time that Rustin was an openly gay man. All right. What kind of tension, beginning with that Montgomery encounter moving forward, did it create for him and the movement, per se? Right. Well, let me back up a little bit. In 1953, January 1953, Rustin was uh, arrested in California when he was caught having gay sex with a couple men in a car after uh, giving a speech about world peace. And the news hit the newspapers. The news of that arrest hit the newspapers. And A.J. Musty, Rustin's boss at the Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, really engineered Rustin's firing at that point. 
so Reston leaves his position with the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and eventually he he migrates to a, this really progressive group called the War Resisters League, who really aren't concerned about Rustin's sexuality damaging their reputation. So Rustin launches into the modern civil rights movement with King from his position at the War Resisters League. Now, we've got to remember that King and his advisors throughout the South, many of them, are African-American Baptist ministers. And at that point, that was not a really uh, welcoming home. <laughs> openly gay people like Rustin. And so some of them gave Rustin a hard time. And some of them, Byron, were gay themselves. And they still gave Rustin a hard time. And he got a hard time from uh, ministers in the South and from his colleagues in the North as well. So I don't want to isolate one group from another. And I don't want to be uh, absurd about that. That would be uh, ridiculous. He gets fire from all these different groups. But in the South, he's facing this particular problem with ministers who are close to Dr. King. There's no doubt about that. But the key event, even for Dr. King, comes in 1960. Can I talk about this now? You sure can. Okay, 1960. In June of 1960, A. Philip Randolph and Dr. King at the engineering of Bayard Rustin announced that they're going to march on the Democratic and Republican conventions. Uh, there's a congressman from Harlem named Adam Clayton Powell Jr. who does not like the plan to march on the Democrats. He's a Democrat, and uh, and he's being encouraged to try to stop the march. And he's also in line for a powerful committee chair. So he wants to stop the march, and he does it this way. He has an intermediary call Dr. King with a threat, and the threat is this. If you don't call off the march on the Democrats, I'll go to the media and tell them that you're having a gay affair with Bayard Rustin. Now, it's not true. That's not happening. But Dr. King is not a profile on courage on this point. And so he's concerned about the blowback that might happen if it becomes publicized that he and Rustin are having a gay affair. And so what he does after he consults with his colleagues, including Stanley Levison uh, and uh, Clarence Jones, is to get rid of Bayard Rustin. And so he cuts Rustin out of his inner circle. And I hesitate to say this, but it's really a brutal act of bigotry against Rustin. And it's especially brutal because up to this point, Byron, Rustin had engineered so much of the public profile of Dr. King. And so he helped King adopt Gandhian nonviolence in Montgomery. He helps King launch the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He wrote Major King's first major published article. He helped King draft books. Uh, he gave King his first national platform at the prayer pilgrimage in Washington, D.C. in 1957. Uh, he, he introduced King to national leaders. He helps King uh, gain a foothold in India and Africa, and he introduces him to leaders there. And so he had helped construct Dr. King's public profile. But in 1960, Dr. King just mercilessly cuts Preston out of the inner circle, and Byard is crushed. Well, you know, I, I, I hear a bit of irony there because um, you mentioned that one of the people that King consulted was Stanley Levinson, right. who received similar treatment in 63 because uh, Jack right. Hoover suspected he was communist. And so right. you, so this, this this whole thing is sort of circular. It, it keeps going around. Um, but since you mentioned that, um, you, you mentioned the arrest record. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Strom Thurmond have – Rustin's arrest record from 53 entered into the congressional record before the March on Washington? Yeah, the great question is, well, how did he get that? Yeah, yeah. 
Research, and, research. <laughs> research with the help of J. Edgar Hoover, no yes. doubt. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, just before uh, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom happens in 1963, Strom Thurmond goes to the Senate floor. And initially, he outs Rustin as a communist. And indeed, I, as I had mentioned earlier, Rustin was or had been a member of the YCO. And so Strom Thurmond is right about that. But nothing really happens. Uh, and then he later goes to the Senate floor and calls Rustin a pervert and enters the uh, 53 arrest. Uh, you're right about that, too. And so the, civil, the media get a hold of this, and they approach the civil rights leaders. And at this point, Dr. King... And all the others, including Roy Wilkins, who had initially opposed Rustin's work with the march, stand by Rustin uh, and criticize Strom Thurmond for trying to tank the march. It's a beautiful moment, I think, and it's one of the most beautiful moments for me in civil rights history. Now, after Rustin is uh, sort of ceremoniously kicked out of King's inner circle in 1960, yeah. in 63, in, in preparation for the march on Washington, isn't he brought in largely because of the respect that A. Philip Randolph held among the others? I mean, wasn't, wasn't A. Philip Randolph sort of the driving force to get Rustin as the organizer for the march? In part, uh, that's definitely true. Uh, after Rustin's kicked out, he grows closer to A. Philip Randolph. I think that's clearly true, although the two had always been close. Uh, Randolph was Rustin's mentor, uh, and, and Rustin loved A. Philip Randolph. Uh, Rustin also grows close to the leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. And, uh, you know, they're having some friction with Dr. King, and Dr. King knows that uh, if he's going to win over SNCC, uh, Rustin might be helpful. But there's another key point here as well, and that is uh, about King's own abilities and the lack of certain abilities. And so Rustin once said this about Dr. King. You know, Dr. King, I love him, but he really couldn't organize vampires to go to a bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, King had a, had a sense about his own limitations. And so after 60, you know, King is struggling too, right? He's struggling in Albany, and the movement is floundering a bit. And he's realizing that if the movement's going to take off again, he needs a brilliant strategist. And who is that? No one's better than Bayard Rustin. So for these various reasons, he invites Rustin back into the inner circle, and that happens by during that 1963 Birmingham campaign. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, so, and even if I'm correct with the history here, even uh, as you – in the run-up to the march on Washington, Wilkins is still a little uncertain about having uh, Rustin, and and at that point, doesn't King take a more uh, concern? I mean, well, more outward stand to support mm -hmm. Rustin. He does, right? Uh, so in that run-up to the march, uh, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP picks up the phone and calls Rustin and says, you know, I'm not going to support uh, you becoming head of the march because of the 1953 arrest and your communist background, and if these get out, this won't serve the march well. So Roy Wilkins goes into the meeting with the big six, including Dr. King and uh, John Lewis, now Congressman John Lewis, and uh, Whitney Young, James Farmer, and others. And... Uh, John Lewis says that he and some others, including Dr. King, caucused together before the march, before that meeting. And their plan, as they came up with it, was that they would nominate A. Philip Randolph to be the director of the march, knowing that Roy Wilkins, because he had such respect for Randolph, would not deny him that nomination. They also knew that if they nominated Randolph to be the director of the march, 
Randolph would turn around and immediately name Bayard Rustin as the deputy director. <laughs> and that's what happened. That's how uh, John Lewis and Dr. King and others got around Roy Wilkins' opposition to Bayard Rustin becoming the de facto head of the march. And and so between Rustin and Randolph, this march on Washington was an idea that began uh, in the Roosevelt administration. And it doesn't really come to fruition until 63. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. I think this march has at least part of its roots in that 1941 dream that Randolph had to march on Washington in order to desegregate defense industries. Randolph had long wanted to march on Washington. But I'll tell you what, in 1956, Bayard Rustin sat down and wrote a long and detailed memo about on march about a march on Washington. And if you want to see some of the specific tactical, strategic uh, roots of the 1963 march, go to that 1956 memo. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. But, but like Randolph, Rustin had long dreamed of marching on Washington for civil rights. <clears throat> Let's move now to 1980 for just a moment mm-hmm. and, and talk about Rustin sort of makes a shift. And he's, he's, he's long been an openly gay man, but now um, he's an openly gay man um, politically. Talk about right. that. Talk about that. So, for a long time, Rustin was openly gay, but we have to remember that he had been burned on that score for on a number of occasions, including that 1960 incident with Dr. King. And so he's wary of being so out in the open. There's no doubt about that. And he also considers his sexual orientation uh, early in his life and throughout the mid-career to be uh, a part of his private life. And so while he's openly gay, uh, he's not out there marching or demanding rights as some were in the 1960s, as early as 1961, for example, or in the 1950s even. Rustin's not part of that group. And it's not part of uh, the gay rights groups that came to the fore after Stonewall either. So he's not part of the homophile movement in the 1950s and the early 1960s, and he's not part of the gay liberation front after Stonewall. And he really doesn't come active until the early 1980s. And he does so because he has a partner named Walter Nagel at this point. And Walter uh, gently encourages Bayard uh, to become more public in his uh, in his support for gay rights, for LGBT rights. And Rustin had long supported gay rights. It's just that he wasn't uh, politically active in the cause. So it's really Walter Nagel uh, negotiating behind the scenes, uh, gently nudging Bayard to become more public in his stance for gay rights. And indeed, that's what happens. And so uh, Rustin makes a lot of public comments about uh, the need for LGBT rights or gay rights at this point, and he also also lobbies Mayor uh, Koch in New York City, uh, New York City Council members, and makes some national statements about gay rights as well. But really, that doesn't happen until the early to mid-1980s. You know, Rustin was clearly someone uh, of, of enormous talents. Mm-hmm. Would it be fair to say, given, given the work that you've done on Rustin, that given the time period, he was not allowed to reach his full potential? Would that be fair? Oh, I think that's absolutely fair. I don't think he was allowed to reach his full potential as a speaker, for example. Uh, when he spoke for the Fellowship of Reconciliation, traveling across the country, uh, he would move people to tears. Uh, he would also stand in front of them and sing these beautiful spirituals, and I know that you appreciate those as much as I do. Uh, and and when he became more active in the civil rights movement with Dr. King, he was really kept in um, the corner, in the shadows, so to speak. And so he didn't shine as a public speaker, for example. He's shown as a civil rights tactician, but he could do that comfortably in the shadows. 
And that's largely where everybody kept him. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that had he not been arrested uh, on several occasions uh, because of gay behavior and had the country been different in its treatment towards gays at this point, uh, we would have seen Rustin play a much more different role in the gay rights movement as well. But yeah, the country, civil rights leaders, politicians, so many sat on Bayard so that he, his, the fullness of his personality never came to bloom. No, I, I'm, I'm more about the fact that um, given the time period that uh, one, he's openly gay. So, mm-hmm. so, so that, so that's a no-no. Mm-hmm. And then he's openly gay and black. So that's two mm-hmm. no-nos. And he's openly gay, black, and socialist. <laughs> you know, but but then, right. you know, but then again, we. But then again, he's willing to be this consummate behind-the-scenes player. I mean, to me, that's very fascinating because he could have been the person out front, but he's willing to be this behind-the-scenes player and, right. and probably the best civil rights movement ever had. Right. No, I agree wholeheartedly. But it also shows his pragmatic quality, doesn't it? So I think that he sacrificed uh, himself. He did it willingly in order to support the cause. Uh, and I think that he was very cognizant of that happening as well. But, yeah, it's clearly a, an example of self-sacrifice for the greater common good, something that I wish we'd see a heck of a lot more now. <laughs> yeah, you, you and I both. Uh, Michael Long, I want to thank you for being on The Public Morality today. Byron, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for the chat. Oh, my. We will, we will definitely do it again. Okay. There's, there's myriad topics that you and I can discuss. Sounds great. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Coming up, the Voting Rights Act at 50. What does it mean to celebrate the Voting Rights Act's 50th anniversary? And what exactly is being celebrated? The law recently reached its golden anniversary, and the way it is being remembered and the context in which that's happening says a lot about the divergent meanings of the law for liberals and conservatives. Joining me to discuss the Voting Rights Act, its history, and its future is Michelle Jawando. Jawando was Vice President for Legal Progress at the Center for American Progress, Previously, she served as general counsel and senior advisor to Senator Christine Gillibrand, where she was responsible for a wide-ranging portfolio of policy issues uh, pertaining to the federal judiciary, its nominees, Voting Rights Act issues involving women and labor, gays and lesbians, education, telecommunications, technology, and ethics. Fifty years ago, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, 65. Uh, What did it do? So without question, the Voting Rights Act fundamentally reshaped, particularly for African Americans and people of color in this country, both their access and the representation from those communities to really participate in the democratic process as we know it. Um, I think we often think about kind of access to the polls as something that we take for granted. Um, And I think what was so great about the film Selma, it was a wonderful artistic depiction of really some of the challenges. The first scene in that movie where the character that was played by Oprah Winfrey tries to register to vote and it's clear she had been to the registrar's office, not once but twice. And with each time, the questions that were asked 
as a precursor from being able to register to vote um, became increasingly, increasingly more challenging and difficult. And that was the experience for the even select few African Americans who tried um, in the face of threats of violence to even register to vote. And what structurally the Voting Rights Act did was kind of change that norm, um, change the, those systemic obstacles, um, brought in the federal government and their oversight for something called kind of preclearance so that any voting changes that would affect anybody in the state would have to be precleared by the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., so that access to the polls would then become a reality for most people. So let's, uh, I'm going to ask you about Shelby County versus Holder in a moment, but historically, talk to me about how has Congress treated the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act over the years? Well, what's so interesting is that the last time we reauthored the um, uh, Voting Rights Act, which was in uh, 2006, um, it was a Republican who was in the White House, um, that you had an almost unanimous reauthorization. And the reason is such is because at the time it was almost unheard of to want to turn back these kind of questions about access to the polls, particularly in the way that it would affect people of color. And so Congress, up until that point, had, whether or not they liked it or not, enthusiastically and usually overwhelmingly passed the reauthorizations. And there were changes. So we added um, kind of greater protections for language minorities. Um, there, there were different areas that were added to the coverage formula. So when I say that, I mean there were other localities and areas that were then further added to the original list of places that needed to be covered and have their voting rights changes, um, their voting laws changes reviewed by the Department of Justice. So that by the time we got to 2007, there was a robust protections. Um, there was a diversity of types of people. So it wasn't just about racial minorities, but it also included language minorities and um, those with disabilities. And these were all so that had the purpose of how do you make polls and how do you make voting more accessible for more people, which at the fundamental um, core of what democracy is supposed to be about, it is how do you open up the franchise for more people. So with that said, um, what was the significance of Shelby County versus Holder decision? So in 2013, uh, for, for your listeners, uh, the Supreme Court in the case of uh, Shelby County versus then Attorney General Eric Holder, it was by far one of, I would say, one of the worst decisions by the Roberts Court, by Chief Justice Roberts. Um, the Chief Justice, writing for the majority, basically declared that because the Voting Rights Act was so successful <laughs> and that you had um, – black turnout nearly equal to white turnout, as was the case in 2008 when President Barack Obama was elected, um, because you saw fewer and fewer, more people of color and in elected office. Um, you saw great registration. Because it was so effective in opening up the franchise, 
the Chief Justice basically said with this kind of backwards logic that we no longer needed it because it had done its job. We had reached the zenith or the promised land. Um, let, let, me, let, me cut, let me segue on. in here because I, I, cause you said something, and, and, I, and, and I want you to highlight what, what you just passed by. What was – I, I got to ask you this, and you have at it, but what was the constitutional reason – in Chief Justice Roberts, I mean, like, did the Voting Rights Act violate the Fifteenth Amendment? Uh, did it violate the Fourteenth? Uh, what what constitutional rationale did he give? Did he give any? So the rationale, and as much as I can understand it, because I think what you will say, a lot of uh, scholars and those who have looked at that decision question um, kind of how they got to that outcome. And, and you see people who writing for the minority of the court, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that question, you know, is an umbrella should we no longer use umbrellas because of their effectiveness, because they keep us dry from the rain? It is that kind of same logic that the Chief Justice uses when writing for the majority for throwing out Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. One of the things I should also emphasize is that the Voting Rights Act as a whole was not cast aside. Um, and I think that's important for your listeners, and that's important for litigators and those who continue to work and to bring voting rights challengers, because Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is still very much in place. But what he did is basically strike down Section 5, the Section 5 authority of the Justice Department to dispute any changes in the states. So why is that significant? It's important because when you look at states such as Texas and North Carolina and Mississippi and Arkansas and others who quickly moved to make changes after the Shelby decision to make it more difficult for people to participate in the franchise. Before the Voting Rights Act, Section 5, um, was struck down, they would have to make all, all of the changes they wanted to make would have to be reviewed for their constitutionality. And what Chief, the Chief Justice basically said is that we shouldn't have to choose um, that we had done, we were so successful that there were some states that shouldn't be subject to this increased review, and that it was um, it was discriminatory, basically, in fact, for us to look at some of these states and say that they had done so much um, and that they had such a legacy of discrimination that they were the only ones who needed to stay on the hook, and therefore, um, you could probably come up with a new formula, he said, and that that was Congress's responsibility to figure it out, but the Current formula, as it stands, could no longer be used. I'm a, I'm, ha I'm sort of tongue in cheek with you. I'm having a little fun with you now. <laughs> but I asked you what was the constitutional rationale, and you responded with giving me the Chief Justice's sociological analysis. Did, 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 did I miss anything there? Because that's sort of what you gave me was a sociological analysis. Uh, and well, I. Was, I no, no, no. I, I I understand. I mean, I think part of the reason 
why I don't want to say that the Chief Justice had a constitutional argument is because I'm hard-pressed to find one. Uh, quite frankly, um, he, he, he talks, and, and the way that the, the language of the opinion is written is that essentially they don't dispute the logic that, that we had made great gains with the Voting Rights Act um, and that it was actually successful. But I think that there was actually a lack of understanding when you talk about equal protection under the law, then you must also recognize that there are some states, not only with a history of discrimination, that will impact people's lives quite differently than others, but that that continues and persists. And so his reading of the Constitution is something that I would probably take issue with. And so I'm probably pushing back because that's the way that I view it. Oh, no, you're not, put, you're not pushing back. You, you at least agree with me because I'm, I, you know, when I, when, I, when I read an opinion, I'm looking at this violates the 14th Amendment. This violates the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment. And when I read that, I, I didn't see any violation. In fact, as you just said, it worked. And because right. it works, here's now my feeling. And I'm just thinking that feelings are sort of antithetical to Supreme to the Supreme Court, at least that's that's what I, we've been told about legislating from the bench and what have you. But I, I digress. I'm sorry. But 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 really though, I, I think though seriously, I think there's a real irony here in just what you just laid out with, with Justice Roberts' uh, that leading opinion. But the irony is the very thing he said worked and is no longer the reason that being section five and sort of the, uh, sort of the uh, overseeing with the, with the, with the federal government, with that piece, those very States that made section five necessary, many of them went right back into action to do the very thing, same things that necessitated section five originally. Is that correct? That is, that is correct. Not only, you know, one of the things that, um, was so interesting about the opinion, um, Chief, the Chief Justice writes, you know, history doesn't end in 1965 and because of the Voting Rights Act and voting tests were abolished, that, uh, disparities in voter registration and turnout were erased and African Americans attained political office in record numbers. And because of that, we therefore must strike the Voting Rights Act down because it was so successful. I mean, when you think about this um, and put it in context, there are very few things that we do effectively when you think about in mass. And usually when you do that, you improve upon those things. You don't take away the fundam the the foundation of those things that you do so well. The Voting Rights Act, I think, in so many ways, and so many others, I think, would agree with me, was the foundation of changing the way that we think about voting and access and democracy for an entire segment of the community um, of the American citizenry. Because of the Voting Rights Act, you saw increased people of color in elected office because now they had constituents of people from those communities who were able to actually vote and get their voices in elected office. We know how important that is when it comes to policymaking. I'm a former Senate staffer who was often the only African-American and the only African-American woman in the room. And so having those voices makes a difference. 
But because the Voting Rights Act was so successful in changing that paradigm, the Chief Justice goes through what I think is kind of tortured logic in, in some ways to strike down the very thing that helped change the, the, the democracy for what made democracy better for so many other people. Um, and there's a fiery response from uh, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her dissent, and, and I think she really captures um, the wording when she says today was a demolition of the Voting Rights Act and really what it means. It, um, just, just, just following up on it, we talked about that irony piece that didn't recently the uh, Fifth Circuit which would never be confused with the Ninth Circuit, uh, strike down the voter ID law in Texas because it, because in their words, it unfairly discriminated against uh, people of color? Yes, and in addition, that's, that's not the only place. Um, so immediately after Shelby was decided, you saw over 30 states who quickly moved to, to, to move forward with, with making voting difficult for certain populations. If you take away even just the racial lens here, right, if you just say that you're, you're, you're going to make a race-neutral analysis of what's happened, today 36 states require voters to present some type of voter identification. But what's so interesting is if you look at a state like Texas where your concealed carry permit can be used as a form of valid voter identification, but a state-issued ID from a college could not be used as a valid form of voter identification. The question must be asked, why are we making it more difficult for people to participate in a process when we know voter turnout as a whole is incredibly low for most people? So you have states like Texas and Pennsylvania and Arkansas and Mississippi, and I can go on and on, and North Carolina, who quickly moved in. North Carolina has one of the worst, we call it the monster bill, because it is one of the worst um, bills that moved to curtail some of the things that opened up the franchise for so many people in the state. And when you think about how difficult um, and the constraints are in people's times and, and energy and how busy we all are, shouldn't we be thinking about ways, as businesses do, to make things easier and more accessible for the consumer? And the fact that voting is something that we put on a limited time period, on one day, we have really rigid rules, and we make it as difficult as possible in some states. And depending on where you live, your experience is incredibly varied, or who you are, whether or not you're an African-American or a Latino. And we know that looking at surveys such as the one my organization put out, that you are on average will have longer wait times when you actually go to vote than our white brothers and sisters. And so when you have these questions that continually come up about the franchise, it, it's unfortunate to see that history, once again, is repeating itself with making it difficult for some people to vote and easier for others. Um, and I believe Shelby is, 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 is definitely where there was a fork in the road um, for us. I, I don't want to uh, promote um, conspiracy theories here, here on, on radio. <laughs> but, but, give, but given that response, what you just said, I, 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 was, I was thinking back that in the 19th century, Supreme Court defined voting in the 19th century as a fundamental political right because 
the, correct me if I'm wrong, but the court said it's because it's preservative of all rights. Mm-hmm. But but mm-hmm. somehow it, it feels just just even the Shelby ruling, you know, just along with just some of the things you've cited, it feels that we're largely still complacent when swaths uh, of mostly low-income voters, people of color, are systematically disenfranchised. But I, I don't really feel a, a huge uproar other than, you know, the people who are, you know, who are on the ground who are fighting for these issues. I don't feel this is a, a, a larger issue, the people who are not who are outside of this box that are fighting for these things. Well, you know, what's unfortunate is it's not the responsibility of most people to make their government work for them. It is the responsibility of those who, um, of us, of our elected officials, to make government work for the people. That is the essential duty and responsibility. And what has happened is there are some people who have used their positions, either as elected officials or advocates or attorneys. Um, I often think about the great quote about lawyers are either social engineers or parasites on society. And there are some of us who have chosen to kind of use our work to make the world, a, quite frankly, um, a better place, who have chosen to be social engineers, who have chosen to work on behalf of the people. And it is those people who should be who should be up in arms and working on this. Because for most people, they are so busy, as they rightly should, worrying about their families and what's in their bank accounts, and can they send their child to college or to school, and the demands of everyday life. And we have made it almost more and more increasingly difficult for people to recognize that, again, because of bad public policy. But what's difficult about this, and and you have people like myself and others who, who try to talk about this ad nauseum, is because if we cannot awaken really the community to really see what's going on, to recognize that the decisions of policy that does affect how much money they can take home and take home pay when you talk about things like uh, minimum wage standards or or, or labor standards um, or things like uh, paid family medical leave, and these are bills that are being passed in some places and rejected in others. And the way that your elected officials respond to you is through the vote. And there are whole strategies that are put in place to make sure that there's only a small sliver of people who actually come out to vote. Because if those small slivers of people come out to vote, then we, then we know who will win and we know how the story ends. And so until the people again recognize the power of the vote, and it's, it has really always been about this who can control the levels of power and recognizing that the ballot box is the key. And so you have some people who have systemically gone about the country and worked to make it as difficult as a franchise to participate because then you can, again, make the numbers of people actively engaged smaller and smaller. And so until there is a broader awakening and a recognition of how important it is to participate, even in the face of these challenges, we won't be able to really see the change that we would like to see in our elected officials or in the policy because it works right now. The system works for people the way it is. And until we get people to recognize their role in changing it and making it for the better, um, some of these outcomes will remain. Well, finally, let me just, let's take the worst case scenario 
and uh, that the federal judge here in North Carolina sides with the state. What would you see as the future of the Voting Rights Act? You know, when when I think about the North Carolina bill that, you know, cut the early voting period nearly in half, um, it took away, you know, one of the Sundays that many of the churches organized their souls to the polls and invalidated student voter IDs. It ended same-day registration. Um, when I think about how that impacts real people's lives, I know that it is it will cut the numbers of people who have the time and the energy to go through the process and the loops, um, uh, the loop uh, that it takes to kind of go and, and, and actually vote. But I don't think that the end of history ends with people stopping or, or making it as difficult as possible, because I think what you're starting to see with movements all across the country are people saying they are fed up with the status quo. And you will see people recognize that, hey, I, I, I want to be able to go and vote in my uh, local community center. So you'll see things like or, that are happening in Colorado where they're putting up vote centers so you don't have to just go to your precinct. You can maybe get your own ballot based on where you live, but then you can go and vote close to your kid's school. Or you'll see people get creative and think about this from a, a business stance. How can we make, you know, can take care of voter access, we can make things more efficient, we can help more people, and we can answer all of the critics about voter integrity by automatically enfranchising people when they turn 18 and they go to the DMV. So you'll see people make um, moves in that direction, such as what we've seen in Oregon. And I think what people will say if you live in a state like North Carolina and you look at a state like Oregon and you see what a simple system, the supply and demand will say, hey, I want that kind of system. And if people have an opportunity to see that, I do think the arc turns back and that there is a revolt. I mean, you have to remember that the Voting Rights Act was passed only after um, the uh, Bloody Sunday happened a few months before. So there were organized protests and, and there were people who were speaking out, and that's how we got the Voting Rights Act. So I think similarly you will start to see greater and greater kind of uprisings and people saying this is unacceptable. Um, and because I, I, I am a progressive and I am an optimist, I'm also a, a child of a preacher, so maybe I, I always tend to see things half full. I do believe it bends back because what we have, the status quo, is not enough. And I think people are starting to see that. They feel that intrinsically, and they know that something else has to be done. Uh, Michelle Jawando, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for being on today, and um, I'm sure as these issues come back around, we'd love to have you back on again. I'm happy to. I'm happy to be back, and thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. That was Michelle Jawando of the Center for American Progress. Coming up, my closing remarks. Coming up on the public morality. We'll speak with Chelsea Parsons from the Center for American Progress on the nation's gun policy. And after that, Professor Giovanni Perry will join me for a discussion about immigration next time on The Public Morality. I recently read Go Set a Watchman 
Harper Lee's prequel slash sequel to her tour de force, To Kill a Mockingbird. Initially, I was apprehensive because of the controversy that surrounded this so-called lost manuscript that had been recently found and had been given a blessing by Lee, who was reportedly in frail health in an assisted living facility. Moreover, for more than half a century, Lee has maintained her privacy and her steadfast commitment that there would not be another book. Then came the revelation that one of the most beloved characters in literary lore, Atticus Finch, was racist. Say it ain't so. But Watchmen reveals a central truth to the human condition. None of us are as moral as the ideals we embrace, not even Atticus Finch. There is perhaps no better example of this than our third president, Thomas Jefferson. When the principal author of the Declaration of Independence penned, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It is perhaps the essential passage in what serves as America's mission statement. The first time Jefferson publicly introduced the notions of equality was his pro bono defense of Samuel Howell, a runaway slave in 1770. Jefferson wrote, All men are born free, and everyone comes into the world with a right to their person and using it at his or her own will. That single statement reveals the warring factions between Jefferson's commitment to the Enlightenment as well as the hypocrisy that he lived. Jefferson, the ardent defender of individual liberty, who owned slaves. He was a fiscal conservative who personally lived deeply in debt and possessed an avid distrust of government authority who, as president, would engage in unprecedented abuses of power. And there was the decades-long relationship between Jefferson and Sally Hemings, by many accounts his enslaved sister-in-law that reportedly produced six children. Does Jefferson's flaws diminish his contribution to formulating the American experiment, in my view? Not at all. The same holds true for Atticus Finch. As much as we want to keep Atticus Finch on the pedestal of perfection, the embodiment of what we should strive for, Watchman forces us to see him not from the lofty heights of our perceived ideals, but rather from the uncomfortable proximity of our own foibles. Nevertheless, the Atticus Finch who courageously defends Tom Robinson and Mockingbird under the fervor of mob mentality who view the trial as a needless perfunctory act because the mere accusation of a Negro raping a white woman in the South during the Depression is already guilty in the court of public opinion, is still President Watchman. It's a bit more tattered, his shortcomings more visible, much more difficult to immortalize in literary lore, but he's still there, still Atticus. Lee has unleashed Atticus Finch from the shackles of blind adoration, giving us someone who is closer to ourselves, whose greatness is intertwined with our shortcomings. Is that not something we all can understand? And that is how we take one step closer to becoming a more perfect union. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.